It's happy hour again from Uptown New Orleans at the lovely Collins Hotel. Hello, I'm Grant Morris. The Collins Hotel is a great place to come and stay if you're coming to New Orleans and a great place to come and have a drink if you're already here, as we're doing. My special guests on happy hour today are sitting around the table here in the back room of the Collins Hotel. What are you guys all drinking? Some sort of cocktails there? Um, like a rock, slightly dirty. Vodka tonic. Oh, it's a vodka kind of a day here, Chase. What have you got? Good old Diet Coke. Diet Coke. In the next 60 <laughs> minutes, you'll get to meet just four of the many thousands of fascinating people who live in New Orleans. And you'll get to hear some live music as well at the end of the show. You might conclude New Orleans is a great city where people love to talk, have fun, and enjoy great music. But you probably know that already. So let's get right on with doing nothing but spending the next 60 minutes of happy hour together. Frank Perez and Jeff Palmquist are my two guests who have got the vodka drinks over here. They're co-authors of a new book called In Exile, The History and Law Surrounding New Orleans Gay Culture and Its Oldest Gay Bar. Ham Farris is a neuroscientist and assistant professor doing research at the LSU Health Science Center in Animal Bioacoustics. Ham is an authority on the evolution and neurophysiology of hearing. In the right place, I'm almost completely deaf right now. Chase McLeod is a singer-songwriter whose single Kaleidoscope hit the internet with a splash last year. And this year, his first full-length album, Caves, comes out on April 6th, launching with a gig at the House of Blues. And talking of music, the lovely, talented, charming, and always delectable Mitch Foreman is on piano. Oh, that is gorgeous. Mitch, hey. hello, how are you? I'm very well. How are you doing, Grant? Oh, pretty good. How are you feeling? You sound a little gravelly. Uh, it's a new, I'm working on a new kind of voice, a new image. How's it? Mardi Gras? Yeah, getting ready for Mardi Gras, Jazz Fest, the whole thing. What are you going uh, to Mardi Gras this year, Mitch, by the way? Uh, I was thinking of going as, uh, I was going to go as you. Yeah. <laughs> That's an awesome idea. Yeah. Ham, what, what are you going as, Ham? I uh, rotate through about five old crew costumes from the 60s that I've found, and uh, I think this year I'm going to be a giant flirtily kind of authority looking Flirtily authority. Yeah, well, you know, what does that mean like a sort of a? Well, no, cop? it kind of looks both militaristic and flirtily at the same time. So, but are uh, you actually dressed as a flirtily with your arms as the sort of the the fl- top pet? No, 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 no. It's kind of like a uh, a um, Three Musketeers uniform that's completely decorated in sequin flirtily. Oh, sequins. Yes. Oh, that was yeah. the sort of missing. And that's why it's authoritative, because only someone who's in a <laughs> position of authority can wear this many sequins. <laughs> How do you look in sequins? Are they slenderizing? Well, in private, I look pretty good. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you guys going as, Jeff and Frank? I'm going I'm to stick with the old standby the last 10 years and I'm and, and going to show up for Mardi Gras as a bartender on Bourbon Street once again. <laughs> so that's what you do. You yeah. are a bartender yeah. on Bourbon Street. Yep, yep. Don't have to. No new costume. Just going to wear the same thing I wear every other day. What do you wear? White shirt and black pants? Well, no. Black shirt, black pants. Black shirt and black pants. Yep. Now, that yep. is slenderizing, right? Yep. Black is slimming. And Frank, you're a bartender at the same place at Lafitte's? Uh, no, I'm not a bartender, but I do help pay the light bill there. And you did spend last night at a And my mortgage, place. I might add, as right. well. Yeah. Oh, really? Are, are you guys an actual couple as well as co-authors? <laughs> no, we're very good friends. Okay. But you don't live together, or do you live together? No. No. Okay. So what's the light bill got to do with it? Well, I spend a lot of money at Lafitte's. All and right. his tips pay my mortgage and light bill. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly how it works. It's a match made in heaven. What, Frank, what do you do when you're not drinking? Uh, I try to write, uh, so it's, uh, it's about half and half. So you're a real writer then. This, so this book that you've written is, is just one of the many things you've written. This is not your first Correct. radio. Jeff, are you a real writer as well? I am, I'm a novice writer, first-time writer. Frank and I got together on this book, and it's uh, my first bit of published material. 
Have you written anything before that? Like Not a thing. Shopping lists? No, shopping lists, uh, to-do lists, honey-do lists, those types of things. That's but about nothing, it. nothing published. Right. Absolutely not. Okay. So you guys, we'll get on to how you guys met in a minute. Chase, what are you going to Mardi Gras as? Uh, I'm going to go as a dad taking his two-year-old for Mardi Gras for the first time. It's your I, don't kids. Really, I don't really dress up that much for Mardi Gras, but I did when I was a kid. But uh, my wife and I are going to take our son to go see some parades. What's his name? Sebastian. We call him Bash. So Bastion is he named Bart. after Sebastian Bach or anything like no, that? No, he's named actually after Sebastian the Crab from Little Mermaid. My wife is a, a huge Little Mermaid fan. so R- Really? She yeah. must be because that's a permanent thing when you name a it kid. It is, it is. Well, we call him Bash, so it kind of it kind of sticks with Bash. It, it's a little cooler than Sebastian. So. Bash McLeod. Bash McLeod. Well, he sounds like ready to go for a sort of I, rock drummer I think so, yeah, yeah. That's what we're working on. He's actually drums are his, are his instrument right now. So Really? Oh, yeah. He started off on drums. That's a good thing that's to start absolutely, off on. Absolutely, yeah. Mitch, did you start off on drums? No, I was just reminded in high school the name name of our drummer was Philip Bash. There you go. So. Oh, that's a good name for a drummer, see, Bash. Yeah. I guess that's what yeah. made me think of it. Exactly, yeah. Is he talented, or can you tell it too? Absolutely, you can tell. Yeah, I have a video up that I placed on my Facebook, actually. He, uh, he's already started playing, doing his own number counts to count himself off, and he's got some absolute rhythm. Yeah, it's, it's insane. You should have brought him down here. Uh, next time, absolutely. So what are you going to do for Mardi Gras? Take him to, down to Bourbon Street? or No, probably Metairie. We live in Metairie, my wife and I, so we'll right. do the, the truck flow parades out there and... Uh, Wait till he's a little older to take him out to Zulu and stuff like that. But who's playing? Who's tuning a piano somewhere? Is that at your place, Mitch? Is that behind? No, you? that's right on the other side. That's of the on wall. the other side of the wall. Yeah, here. it's for, yeah, for for tomorrow. I for thought Tremay. I don't know. Tremay's going to be shooting here at the hotel. I thought Mitch, you would have been tuning a piano while you were sitting there. No, I, I usually make it worse when I do that. Yeah, <laughs> try and do it yourself. Yeah. Hey, Ham. Talking of now p- pianos and you know sound, this is what you do for a living. Because I know the in the interest of full disclosure. I've probably known you for how many years? 15 or something? Something like that. It wasn't until we had a meeting about who to book for the show the uh, other day, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, and we're sitting around saying, what about this person, what about that person? And someone said, what about Ham Farris? And I'm like, yeah, I know Ham Farris. He's a great guy. What, why would we want him on the show? So he said, he's a, neuro, he's a world-renowned neuroscientist. <laughs> I'm like, what? That guy? So that's a real new... That's, that, I think that typifies New Orleans more than anything. Is that you are just some guy that I see at gigs, basically, or, or at parties. Yeah, and I didn't know all these years that you're actually like a world-renowned neuroscientist. It happens all the time. Really? No, if I don't put the white lab coat on. You know, I'm I'm asked to nobody can believe clean it. things up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to be a world-renowned neuroscientist? In the well, the world-renowned of- part, uh, I'm, I'll I'll let you say. But the okay. neuroscientist, I had three interests: uh, sports, biology, and music. And you can see, well, you can't see on the radio, but I'm not an NFL football player type body, so sports was out. Yeah. But music and biology came. What about in. badminton? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, golf too. But yeah. um, the music and biology came together, and, and when you put those together, you're interested in how the how the brain, the underlying mechanisms, is how we perceive sound and the signals that we're using right now. But you must be too intelligent to be a football player. Then. <laughs> I don't know. Because that sounds <laughs> difficult. So somehow you stumbled into sound, into the science of sound. Well, I took a class. It sounds easy. Okay. Yeah, okay. I took a class from a guy who studied the neurophysiology of um, sound perception, and he worked on crickets. So they have ears that work just like ours do. Crickets? Yes. So the males like are out there singing. Uh, uh, uh. Exactly. Well, they're rubbing their wings together, and this is the sexual advertisement signal. That's uh, the acoustic equivalent of a peacock's tail. And the females use that signal to make mate choice decisions, and their ears have to sort the sounds, just like we're sorting my voice from this piano being tuned mm. and the sound of the air conditioner and all this other stuff. They're doing the same thing, and it's functioning in the mate choice context, and that to me was, uh, they put it all together right there. So the rest is history. 
The, uh, and so you heard about this. I mean, you went to a class of the guys talking about this, and you thought, well, this would be a great thing to do for the rest of my life, figure out why crickets are attracted to each other. That's right. Crickets, frogs, birds, anything. That's why it's called bioacoustics. It's anything that a- oh, animals do. Yeah. How a- the hows and whys of how animals produce, use, and detect sound is the And does that have any application to us? Oh, yeah. Humans? Absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, I'll, I'll quote Helen Keller when comparing vision and, and hearing since she's, she didn't have either one of them. And she says that uh, vision, uh, being blind, cut her off from things, but being deaf, cut, cut her off from people. And so much of our emotions, much of our communication, much of what we do is based on sound. So you and I, you could move to the other side of the world and you and I can have a full relationship over the phone. But if we just sent each other still pictures, just visuals, we, our relationship would never develop like we would if it was over sound. And, so this, and this forum is a perfect example of that. And so much of what we do and perceive in our personalities is based on how we communicate acoustically. And music's the ex, the, this extreme exaggeration of that. In, in Does that make sense? <laughs> well, now, what sense is an extreme exaggeration? You mean it's an extreme exaggeration of the ability to communicate That's using right, sound. to communicate ideas, emotions. Right. Um, uh, states of, of being, you know, it, it's a long way from sitting there and, and making a yes-no sound to uh, what we're just listening to. It is weird, actually, when you think about it, because it's just a collection of notes. Uh, it is, but no, it's a bunch of signals. It's, the, the notes are complicated, but, but actually. We, but if you look at a spectrogram of them, it's a, we're still right. having trouble. Like, one of the hardest things we've had to program right now is voice-activated or voice recognition software. I mean, it's been years been working on that to get it right. Whereas you and I can walk into a room and there can be a million people we've never met before. If they speak the language we understand, we'll communicate with them. But we haven't written a program that can do that yet. So it's a pretty complicated signal. Our brain's doing something that's yeah, fairly Yeah, what I mean is when you listen to the piano, say like a cluster of notes on a piano, mm-hmm. we all agree that that sounds plaintive or that sounds upbeat. But it doesn't really, does it? I mean, it's just a, it's specifically it's just notes well, it's but inter- we translate it as to meaning so this is kind of getting into an area where a lot of people are researching it's the it's the what is the um cognitive neuroscience of music and if you give people sounds and ask them the simple test is it musical or isn't it musical that's so call you, that music call that music or call it not music and the sounds can be anything from you know just random sounds and what people converge on or what where the sort of plots show where music is in perception, are things that are at the rhythm of our respiration and within the frequency range of human speech. So if you go beyond those ranges of in time or in frequency, so pitch, what we usually call frequency, you end up with something that someone calls non-musical. And so that's why I said earlier that it's, it's, an, it's a full exaggeration of our speech and communication. Can that you, makes sense. Can you tell what sort of, as a musician, say to the musicians, to Mitch and Chase here, can you tell them What's more attractive to the human ear? Well, no, you can. I could. You, know, you can plot it out and show you mathematically or quantitatively. You could do it, but our brains are so good at it. We, you know, we're we're answering that question already. But could you, you know? write a hit song? Is what I'm saying. There are some people who have taken the like parameters. Of, I've just read about this. They've taken, say, the mathematical parameters that Bach has used in all his compositions, and then told the computer, "Here are the limits." in time, frequency, combinations of things, and just said, make something. And what comes out is actually something that someone would say, hey, that sounds like Bach. So there right. are quantitative limits to it, but I, I wouldn't try to tell a musician because it's, it's infinite. Them. There's an infinite number of things you can do between, it's a continuum between one end to the other of what we call musical, and so anywhere in between in all the combinations. How do you do it, Chase? Do you sit down with an idea for a song? 
Yeah, pretty. I mean, pretty much. With a with a musical idea or a lyrical idea? Uh, both. A, most most of the time, a lyrical idea. Yeah, most. So time, you start off with a story. Most of the time, it starts with a lyric uh, and a melody. Uh, it's a vocal melody, and then I sit down to the piano and and kind of chord it out a bit, and comes into a song eventually. So you're looking for you're looking for sounds that echo the lyrics you're writing. Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking for a tone musically that that mirrors or goes well with the lyrics and the tone of the of the lyrics that I'm writing. Because first and foremost, when I write a song, it's it's lyrically and it's from the the idea or whatever that lyric is going to kind of try. What to are you at. writing about these days? Uh, the, the new album. The new album, Caves, is kind of got a dark undertone to it. That's why I call Hence it Caves. The title. Hence the title, right. Caves. Uh, it's a lot to do with. Um, with the way we use, as humans use words to hurt each other and we fall short of a lot of things and we aren't honest, honest with ourselves all the time about what we really are or, or how, how we really quite. feel. So it's got a lot of, a lot of lyric things that, re, that reflect upon, like, uh, like specifically there's a song that talks about just using our words to hurt each other uh, and, and cut each other down with it and just kind of the things that we do that we're not honest with ourselves about. So. Do, you, do you find you, you do that? You like to Absolutely, cut yeah, yeah. people down? I, I think everybody does it. You know, it's a matter of just being a... You know how severe it is, or being honest with yourself that you're doing it. Sometimes, you do you do it intentionally to make people no, no, feel abso- bad absolutely not. No, I'm not the type of person at all. But I think that the whole album is kind of a reflection of just being honest with yourself about some of the things you don't want to be honest with yourself about, and maybe having a little bit of a dark side. Yeah. What is what is your demon that you're trying to confront? Uh, I wouldn't per se demon. I would think that uh, that's a good question. Actually, I don't know. Maybe I'm still trying to figure it out. That's why I'm writing. I thought songs. if you written how many songs? Ten songs on the there's album? ten songs on this album. Yeah. And you have you developed you haven't developed some kind of a theme over those ten songs about this caves the dark caves, so the dark <laughs> yeah the, this is the idea that what's dwelling you know, in the cave I, did, I didn't try to write the soul these songs of Chase I didn't try to write these songs with that intention in mind I think that collectively and not uh, not all of them there's maybe one or two that are a different reflection there's a song about my wife on there and about our marriage and stuff so but for the most part there's an undertone of. Uh, of being honest with yourself or maybe like having to come to realize something about yourself that you didn't want to realize or saying something you didn't mean to say and falling short kind of. So I thought that in the end, I kind of tried to search through all the songs and decide uh, what is the common factor, what's the common thread. And it seemed like that was that little right. bit, that little bit of, of hinting to the dark and darkness and understanding that a little more about myself was the idea. So it seemed Let's like, make you play one then. Okay. What okay. do you think you might play for us? Uh, this song is called uh, Raise the Dead. Raise the Dead. Yeah. What a great start to the show. Okay. We just have to move things around a bit here.
Very nice. Okay. Drag that, drag that mic over here. Wow, that was great. Very nice. We are who we think we are. Right. So you can catch uh, a little bit of the theme in there. That song pretty, yeah. pretty directly speaks to the, kind of the idea of the CD, and so just falling short using your words to kind of... It also says that after you're dead and gone that this thing will live on forever. And yeah, yeah, it basically says that. It's, it really uh, speaks more to the, uh, to the power of the words that we say and then the, the, the weight the weight that's kind of held in that, and you don't even realize it sometimes that the things you say really, really can affect and either build something up or tear it down really easily. So it's kind of the power of our words. And, how and the pa- what about words. the power of the words in this book? Um, in Exile, the history yeah. and law surrounding New Orleans gay culture and its oldest gay bar, which apparently are the first words ever recorded about the history of gay New Orleans. Well, y- yes and no. I mean, there's, there have been articles written and there have been pieces uh, about aspects of the gay community throughout New Orleans history, but this is really the first uh, comprehensive treatment of the history. Well, Frank Perez and Jeff Palmquist wrote this book between them, our two guests here. That was Frank who was just saying that. What made you decide to write this thing, given that, well, you're a writer, and Jeff, you, you were just like a, a friend at the time? Well, Jeff, uh, Jeff was a bartender at Lafitte in Exile, which is the oldest gay bar in New Orleans. It's pretty much my home base of drinking operations, and uh, we developed a friendship uh, some years ago. Right. And uh, as a history uh, person that's inter- interested in history, 
and all things gay, I was... Uh, all things gay. I was very frustrated. You're that interested in all things gay. Well, maybe not all, but, but many things gay. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, but I was I'd frustrated. Like a, I'd like a list of some of those things. Well, Grant, <laughs> we only have, <laughs> well, what, 45 minutes? Okay, well, we'll get to that toward the end then. Uh, Start taking notes. But no, I, I became yep. frustrated a few years ago because I wanted to read about the history of gay New Orleans, and right. it just did not exist. And uh, I was talking to this with Jeff at the bar one day. And, uh, do you remember how exactly the idea came up? I, you know, I was thinking about that the other day, exactly, where, where we got, where the foundation of this started. If I remember correctly, we were in the bar one day, and, you know, one of the many daily anecdotes probably led to me spinning around or turning around to you and saying, I need to write a book. And I think that's really at that point where it started. Kind of like the same thing right now. Where we're just, just ordering, we're ordering a drink. <laughs> trying to yeah, order a drink exactly. on the clock. It is about, hey, do you guys want anything? I'm cool. Ham, you good? Yeah. Do you want anything else? Chase another one? Get another one? Another vodka. Okay, good. Okay. So I was still following that even though we're paying, facing the drink right. orders at the same time. I was too. Can you just <laughs> recap that, Ham? Where were we again? Continue, please. <laughs> well, like I was saying, I think that it's something transpired in the bar, and I turned around to you and I said, I just, oh, my God, I need to write a book about this place. Right. Something funny had happened at the bar. It, it may have been, uh, well, a lot of things funny happened at the bar, but one of those, it was after one of those incidents uh, that you suggested somebody ought to write a book. And I People been, always say that, don't they? I should write right. a book about yeah. what goes on here. And that's exactly how this started. It's exactly how it started was, you know, somebody should write a book about this. And I, and I, I think I said that, and it wasn't very long. You got, looked at me and you said, Jeff, if you're serious about that, let's do this. And I said, let's do it. And I think it wasn't very long after that. that I, I said the name needs to, needs to be in exile. So right. why is the – this, now just to straighten this thing out from the beginning – Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, which is the oldest bar apparently in the entire known history of the world, if you live in New Orleans, is not the same place well, as this. Uh, yes and no. Lafitte's in exile, the gay it's bar. the second time you've answered a question by saying yes and no. It, it actually You're going to get one more and then you have to be definitive. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the gay bar, Lafitte in exile, actually started at where the blacksmith shop is now. The blacksmith shop was once called Cafe Lafitte uh, in the 30s and 40s. And I think it was in 1953 that the owners of the bar, who were very, very open and receptive to their gay clientele, you didn't have gay bars back then, as right. we understand that term today, but Cafe Lafitte, where the blacksmith shop is now, was about as gay-friendly as the times would permit. But the owners of the bar lost the lease in the early 1950s, and the new owner did not welcome gay people, did not want them there, and so the gay clientele said, fine, we're going to move down the street and open a new bar, and that's where the in exile comes from. Okay. What was the definition back in those days of being gay, exactly? Are you guys pointing to each other? Who's, well, the, who's the expert on the history of being gay? Well, nobody used the term gay back then. The well, only place you saw the word homosexual was in uh, clinical uh, psychology uh, textbooks on mental disorders or in <laughs> sermons on eternal damnation. Right. And back then, homosexuality was defined by... Well, it was a verb. It was what people did. It was not associated with a state of being or an orientation. That's a relatively recent concept. Okay, so it was just a sex act, homosexuality. Right. It was considered a mental disorder, and it was considered a crime against nature. But a mental disorder is a different thing from an act of actual having sex with someone. Or, or, or wanting to do that was, was right. determined the, as the a mental disorder. Right, the desire... To engage in homosexual right. behavior was considered a sign so, of a so, disorder. So what, when you say there was a, a gay clientele, what would that have been? That would be guys who were secretly attracted to each other but couldn't tell anybody. Right. That would have been closet cases. 
And what did they do during? Were they married to other to to? M- many of them were married to women, and when you know, put on all the airs and went through the the motions and uh, pretended. Uh, in many cases, the wives knew, but in many cases, they didn't. Or there was the uh, the stereotypical lifelong bachelor, like Lyle Saxon, for example, who was very instrumental in. Uh, attracting artists to the French Quarter in the early part of the 20th century. How did he attract them? Uh, he himself was a writer, and he led a personal crusade not only to preserve a lot of the buildings in the quarter that were in pretty, pretty, a pretty sad state of disrepair at the time, but he attracted a lot of his writer friends and colleagues to come to New Orleans. He sold it as the last frontier of Bohemia, and he was very successful in attracting quite a lot of writers and artists to the French Quarter. In fact, one of the points we make in the book that if it were not for Lyle Saxon, well, the French Quarter would be very, very different than it is today. And that's just one example of the many contributions gay New Orleans, gay New Orleanians have, have made throughout its history, but have usually gone unrecognized. Have you all seen Midnight in Paris? It's the Woody Allen movie? Not yet. No. no. Well, it's kind of, I'm not going to give anything away. It's kind of about uh, romanticizing previous times in history and thinking that, you know, sometime in the past is more romantic than the life you're living now. And uh, for him, it's times in Paris. But for Woody Allen, I mean. But, you know, the times, the, the 20s through the 50s in the New Orleans, especially in the quarter, to me, if I could, one of the times I could go back to, just to look at the list of the artists and the writers who were there, who were just walking down the street, I think that would be one of the, my first choices. I really do. I mean, Truman Capote, William Faulkner, Tennessee Williams, you know, I mean, just... These guys never, are all gay? Uh, William Faulkner wasn't gay, but Truman Capote was. Uh, Tennessee, Tennessee Williams. Williams yeah. uh, I'm not talking Gordy about just Doe. gay and gay. I'm just talking about the right. whole bohemian right. culture. And, and yeah, but what I was thinking was, was it better than if you were gay? Or was it worse because you had to pretend you weren't? Well, what do you think? I mean, it was it was worse in the sense that you could go to jail for being gay. I mean, it, you had to hide who you were. Little, it might be a little bit worse than... <laughs> than openly going into Lafitte's bar and having a few drinks. I mean, look, we interviewed men who, even into the 1960s and early 70s, when they would leave the bar, would look uh, both ways down the street. You know, it's at the corner of uh, Bourbon and Dumaine, and they would look up Bourbon and look down Dumaine to make sure no cops were around as they left. So, I mean, it was a terrifying thing to be gay. And that really didn't change until the 1980s. Yeah, you know, I think one of the stories, or one of the interviews, one of the people that we talked about in the book gave a perfect example one gentleman was married and would, would go to the bar to hang out and, and do what you do at the, at the well, gay bar what, back in those days. What did you do back in those well, days? Well, I don't know how public are we here, but what, well, one of the things... Well, you can say anything. It's, it's not on the actual radio, so... To, yeah. They would go to, you know, I, the married gentlemen that were gay would certainly go to the gay bar to explore their homosexuality. To, to engage to in sex. their homosexuality. In a bar or in a back room? Or? In, in the bar, in the back room, anywhere that, that happened to be available that they wouldn't get caught or arrested, like Frank was saying. Right. You know, one of the things that's... That was the good old days. You could have sex in a bar? You could, you know, I don't know. I guess you still can. <laughs> well, Some places. We're in a bar right well, you're now. You're a bar. <laughs> 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 one, one of the things I think that's, that's really fascinating, if you look back in time... Of the time that we were speaking, the bar was the only place for a gay gay man to go to do that. The whole scope, the whole scene of of gay bars has really changed in the last oh ten fifteen years, and I, and and we talk about this a lot. But there are still gay men out there that uh, that don't go to the bar and anymore do not need to go to the bar to find male companionship or explore their their homosexuality, you know, and, and a lot of the demise or the, 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 the change at, in the gay bar scene is, is due to the Internet. 
Right. Uh, well, people don't. There's you know, gay people and straight people who don't want to meet each other in bars. Yeah. There's so. people that don't want to go to the bar. Yeah. You know, they'd rather just right. log on and find somebody online. Exactly. So that's the same thing's happened. Oh, but but are you saying that guys are banging each other in this bar? And you're, yes. And, yes. <laughs> that must have been an exciting evening out. And, and it still does happen <laughs> even today. Uh, it's not as common as it used to be because it's not as necessary as it used to be. Uh, but during certain uh, come down, come down to Lafitte's. <laughs> not this weekend. Well, maybe this weekend, but next weekend. Let's just say that during Mardi Gras and Southern Decadence, there's a reason the gay bars drape their balconies with black vinyl. <laughs> Can we come back to that? Sure. sure. <laughs> okay, we will in just a moment. Why there's black vinyl on the balconies <laughs> of gay bars during Southern Decadence and Mardi Gras? For right now, though. <laughs> Mitch Foreman, what are you thinking of playing today? Well, that's a tough act to follow, that question. I know. But uh, let's play Like Someone in Love. Okay. An old standard. Okay. Mitch Foreman, Like Someone in Love. Yeah, thank you. Like someone in love. That was a beautiful piece. Absolutely. When did you first play that? Oh, many, many years ago. Many years ago. Chase, I think there was black like vinyl is? involved when I first played black it. Black vinyl. <laughs> I'm going to come back to black vinyl. Chase, how do you feel like that as a piano player? Listen to that. Oh, it's amazing. I wish I could play like that. You could. I, I could. Just yes. it'll, it'll five be dollars <laughs> yeah. for the DVD. Yeah. Hey, listen, we're going to talk about why there's black vinyl on the balconies of bars in Southern Decadence, and we're going to talk about Southern Decadence as well, as might go in just a minute. But if you're coming to New Orleans and you're looking for something to do that doesn't probably involve black vinyl, well, maybe it does. 
Uh, you need to give our friends at neworleans.com a call or drop them a line. If you're headed to New Orleans and you want to book a hotel or you need some tips on what to do, check in with our friends at neworleans.com, the official New Orleans travel site. Our friends sitting around here at the table today at happy hour are Ham Farris, who's a neuroscientist, Chase McLeod, who's a singer-songwriter, and the two gentlemen right across the table from me, Frank Perez and Jeff Palmquist, authors of the book In Exile, The History and Law Surrounding New Orleans Gay Culture and Its Oldest Gay Bar. And I read that upside down. I think you have to that agree. Was that was good, pretty Frank. impressive, wasn't it? Yeah. So let's talk about what Southern Decadence is for a minute. Do you, do you guys mind talking about more gay stuff just for a moment? Sounds good to Chase, me. Chase, you're comfortable with the gay conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> How often have you sat around a table talking to a bunch of gay guys about being gay? Uh, it's probably my first time that I can remember. I mean, it may have happened before. How are you feeling about that? Completely comfortable. Good. It's with interesting, it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I yeah. didn't I'm know learning, that guys were banging lot. each other in the bar in the 1950s. I learned something new today for sure. Well, people have been banging everybody everywhere <laughs> since. <laughs> in a bar? <laughs> Come on, it's a, <laughs> the easiest place. There's alcohol involved. Have you been? How many bars have you been into? You're, you grew up in New Orleans, right? That's right. Ma'am? Yes, I did. What uh, What school did you go to? For I went to Newman. Newman, and there's yeah. a lot of drinking involved there in the town area. You drink at Miss May's and all those bars. Miss May's. I remember when I turned 18 at the boot, and I went in, and I yelled to the bartender, it's my 18th birthday, and he said, you've been coming in here for three years. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, many times you had, how many times have you had sex with a woman in a bar? Uh, none. None. Thank none. you very much. Yeah. Chase, have you been But no, in... it's not from lack of trying, though. So. No, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> there's nobody having sex I in mean, bars. Every time I asked, they were like, "It's gonna, it's gonna be a mess." There's no vinyl. <laughs> Chase, you go to bars in Metairie a lot? Uh, no, before, I, I'm, before I'm, you got married. The only time I go to bars is when I'm playing at a club or something like that. I'm really never been. Well, to you're bars sitting on stage looking down. Ever seen anybody having sex in a bar? Absolutely not yet. No. 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 Okay. Now you two guys, though, apparently that was going on a lot in the 1950s. And what you're saying is it's still going on here in the French Quarter. In, in to to a certain extent. But to any extent would be great. Well, yeah, but you have to understand, Grant, back in the 1950s and, and even before, uh, it, it was such a taboo and so criminal and so terrifying. Uh, to, I mean, the, the gay bar afforded uh, these closet cases the only opportunity to explore their sexuality. And unlike uh, their, their straight counterparts, gay men uh, in yesteryear did not have the advantage of ritualized courtship and the dating scene and drive-ins and things like that. So the few hours they spent at the gay bar were very precious. And why waste that time talking and getting to know one another? Let's <laughs> yes. just cut to the chase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I, I think, think every man in the world would agree with that. Well, yeah. Most, if straight men could have sex with women in bars, don't you think that would happen? Yeah. Of course. Of course. That's what guys want to do, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a rhetorical <laughs> question. Yeah. <laughs> I think you all know the answer. So you finally can do that because th- there's another guy involved. Right. I think, Jeff, why don't you tell him about Grant Storms when he came? You know, that's what this whole conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here shaking my head a little bit. These are the types of conversations. All of a sudden now we'll have preachers in bars with cameras and preachers. Yeah, oh, this and is then, the guy that was walking yeah, around the French then, Quarter with his cross. Right. Well, they do that. There's still ones that do that. This one was was in the bar with a camera telling the whole world how awful and, and sinful and terrible it was to be doing things in a gay bar on Bourbon Street. Mm-hmm. Now, remind you, there's the same gentleman that was caught here about uh, six year. months ago or last year out in a park in Kenner exposing himself to children. Wow. So Yeah, that was a sort of a fatal mistake, yeah, really, for that guy. Yeah, yeah, sort of undercut the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're not saying it's dreadful. I'm saying it's great. Well, sure, it's, it's great. slightly different 
We're all for Attitude. it. We're all for it. Absolutely. We're all for it. Absolutely. Of course, Absolutely. what guy in the world wouldn't be for having sex with people in a bar? <laughs> but what I'm saying is in the straight bars, no one's doing it. I think my two colleagues here have agreed with me on that. I, I, don't know, saying, I don't know if you can say they're not doing it in straight bars. I don't think you can say that. They may not be doing it as much. Maybe. Chris has had sex in a, gu- no, no, in no, a no, bar. I've seen it at the booth. At they, the booth, you've seen two people having sex. So they're okay, doing it. All right, they're okay. doing it. We just do it more. <laughs> and, it's, and this is the where the black vinyl comes in. The black vinyl. You want to, you want to hear the story on the black vinyl? Yes. All right. Gay bars in Southern Decadence and Mardi Gras, if you've driven by them in the French Quarter, they'll have a propensity for decorating like there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be really gay about it. We'll gay it up and decorate really nice. (laughs) Okay. About six years ago, those decorations, at least at our bar, involved, we have a balcony, and involved putting black material on the inside of the balcony to just kind of line it. And then we did decorations on top of it. Several guests or customers after that holiday, came down and said, you know what, here's, here's 20 bucks. Here's, here's 40 bucks. Thank you so much for putting that black material out there on the balcony because then I could still be standing out there throwing beads and my buddy could be on his knees taking care of my business all at the same time. <laughs> now that's so nice. the black vinyl has, has gotten the name as the, of the holiday blowjob screen and it's required for every holiday now. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a charming story. Yeah. <laughs> that could work both ways. I mean, why wouldn't they have that on other balconies? Why wouldn't everyone do that? Oh, all the gay, all the gay bars that Never have balconies. Never gay. I mean, you know, every balcony balconies, on Bourbon Street. Balconies, period, right? Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to get a blowjob at Mardi Gras while they're throwing <laughs> beads off? You could get one at a gay bar. You have to. Yeah, I mean, after all, hey, it's only a mouth, isn't it? <laughs> mouth to mouth. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so tell us something a little bit about Southern Deccans. Because that's something that most people don't know anything about at all, especially if they're listening to this outside of New Orleans. Well, Southern Decadence uh, began, believe it or not, as just a private party among some uh, undergraduate students and graduate students uh, who were living in uh, the slave quarters apartment in a home in Treme. And uh, it was Labor Day weekend. They were bored. uh, School was getting ready to start, and they decided to have a costume party. And they sent out uh, invitations to their friends and we do have a, uh, a photograph of the, one of the original Southern Decadence invitations in the book. And it said, come dressed as your favorite Southern Decadent. Uh, and that's how it began. And they decided to have a little promenade or a little walking parade. Uh, and then the parade was formalized uh, the next year. And it just grew after that. And uh, now it, uh, it's huge. it attracts over 100,000 uh, men and women to the city every Labor Day weekend. And has an economic impact of over $130 million. And the great thing about Southern Decadence is that uh, it really helped uh, the straight community, especially the business community, realize the spending power of, uh, of the gay community. Yeah. Well, we have the, what's the thing at 4th of July, the Essence Festival? Right. Yeah. That we get, suck all the money out of the black community, and then Southern Decadence sucks all the money out of the gay community. What could be next? We need to come up with one more sort of portion of the American market that isn't catered for. Jazz Jazz Fest. Fest, Jazz Fest. That that attracts everyone from New York. What about some sort of Latino (laughs) festival? (laughs) What about some sort of Latino festival that we don't have here? Cinco de Mayo hasn't really picked up. caught on here yet. We need something else. Chase, what do you do during the day? Are you a full-time musician? I'm not a full-time musician. I actually work for an audiovisual company. I do. Uh, actually, I'm in the middle of a job switch. I just quit my job yesterday and I started a new one. So I get about a week and a half off for the next week and a half. So you're one of the job. few people in America who 
has a job to go to. Yes, I do, yeah. What's the new job? All the new job is still audiovisual. I do lighting and sound and uh, video for, uh, I'm starting with Swank Audiovisuals at the new Hyatt Regency, the hotel downtown. So I've been working for a company for four years on the West Bank, though, doing a lot of weddings and corporate lighting, stuff like that for events. And, and So what's this school going to be about Swank? What do they do? Uh, the same thing. They're just a larger lighting company. They do lighting, video, and audio. And so I'll, wor- I'll work out of the Hyatt Regency down there. So there's a f- that's a full-time job, lighting at the Hyatt Regency? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's always corporate events coming in, stuff, uh, conferences, people. The Hyatt's, the, you know, they just opened back up, so it's been it's booked pretty much for the next year, two years. So they've got events back-to-back, so it'll keep me pretty busy. What sort of hours? Is that like a regular job? or For the most part, yeah, and then I'll work, uh, you know, it's kind of sporadic with per event. but That's convention I, people. It's people who don't want to spend. Conve- it's convention people, yeah, so it's most so of the time. So they're at the hotel doing stuff. So you have to, are you sitting through talks and uh it kind of it kind of depends a lot of times if i'm operating yeah i'll operate lighting boards or video video switchers stuff like so that. what are you hearing about are you, do you learn stuff i mean uh, you're overhearing conversations about business and heart well, surgery and what i do now what i've done for the last four years has been the bulk of my work has been in like weddings and parties stuff like that you know so i mean it's not a lot of sitting through com- like talks or conferences or anything like that but what i'll get into now will be a lot more of that so i'm sure i'll have to listen through some things that i probably don't want to that must be quite fun being at, it wed- is. Being at weddings all day, though. That's, that's, that's fun, yeah. I do like doing weddings, stuff like that. I bet. Concerts. I do love doing, I, you know, run sound for other bands, run lighting for other bands. Anybody always, good? Um, Rock and Doopsie, a couple of different, I mean, no one's super notable, I guess. We did, we did a stage at Gretna Fest this past year, had a lot of the cover bands over there, so that was kind of fun. Well, cool. Yeah. So talking about music, you want to play another song off the album? Absolutely, yeah. What, uh, are, the, what are we going to do this time? I'm going to play Kaleidoscope, actually. It's the one that I have a music video for. Yeah. And we re-recorded it uh, for this album. It was on my EP that I released in 2009, and it's the only song from that that I'm going to put on this new album as well. So we re-recorded it. But Kaleidoscope. Yep. Kaleidoscope. Okay, let's take a listen. Chase McLeod. That's a great name for an artist as well, isn't it? I get that all the time. I did not understand that, but people say it, so I'll take it. Is it your real name? It is my real name. Okay, yeah. put the put the mic on the book there. Oh. Yeah, right. otherwise it rattles around a little bit. Just become another one of them. 
Kaleidoscope. So you've only been playing piano pretty recently, since like 2006, Chase? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, let me get up to the mic here. Yeah, come on. Yeah, That's I, uh, Beautiful. I've been playing music um, since, since I was young, 11 years old or so. I, I sent you that. And, uh, but I picked up piano in 2006. I played guitar and drums for a majority. And, uh, and I, I dabbled and tried to learn piano when I was about 13 or 14, but took about one or two lessons at like a community class and, and gave up on it. It was a lot to learn. And so, uh, I picked it up again once I became more of a songwriter when I got a little older. I started writing songs on guitar and uh, realized that I wasn't really able to express myself the way I wanted to on a guitar and write the way I wanted to. So uh, it was at Delgado at the time and went in one of the little piano rooms up on the third floor and kind of spent the next three, uh, three or four afternoons kind of just sitting down with a pen and paper and a piano and it, it kind of opened up a whole new world to me. Uh, just playing. That must have been quite a week. It was. It was amazing, yeah. It's, and I've been riding that wave from discovering... That I could, you know, enjoy writing again. It must enjoy. have changed your voice, I would think. Absolutely, too. yeah. I was able to to kind of stop emulating, and uh, you know, there's a lot of bands that I like and stuff, and writers that I really like a lot and stuff. And so I think uh, when you listen to them a lot and you really admire them, um, I think I wanted to just kind of emulate what I thought was really good. And I think there's a certain sense of like emulation that's not bad, but I was able to to incorporate that with a way of writing my own style and singing my own way, and that just kind of felt really natural and right. And so it was kind of a piece I had about it, and it's been working ever since, you know. It's been and really would that be it. something to do with the way we hear or the way Chase was hearing his voice? What, changing his voice when he switched from guitar yeah, when to you, piano? Yeah, changing the way that he sings. Maybe it could be something with... Uh, well, it's definitely something with perception, but whether that's something that's predictable, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, a lot, I, I play music, too, and, and I grew up wanting to be a meter. Yeah. And so every time I pick up the guitar, I'm, I'm, I, even if I don't want to do it, I'm, I end up trying to play like it's New Orleans funk standard. Yeah. You know, even if, it's, if someone says, play this Pink Floyd song, about <laughs> you know, 10 seconds into it, I'm starting to syncopate it, and I can't help it because that's what I... Because you're re, I've re, Yeah, that's right. Because I've reinforced it somewhere along the way, which make, makes me feel good. So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's comforting. Yeah. 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 But do, do we hear, you know, like some people can sing and some people can't. Yes. Mean, Chase can sing, like hold those notes and it sounds great and strong. Has it got anything to do with the way we hear as an expert on hearing? Um, yes, it does have to. It doesn't have to do with the way we hear in the periphery, meaning your um, inner ear. It has to do with how those signals and neural impulses from the inner ear are interpreted by the brain. And there's a condition called atonia in which you, you have completely... Um, uh, zero ability to keep time and to hear different pitches. So um, there's a continuum there. But um, Is atonia, that's what we call tone deafness? Kind of. It's worse than that, actually. It's, most people who are tone deaf, um, who are, don't sing well, you know, and, and you, know, you hear them singing in the ca car and you turn off the radio and they're horrible, they just haven't practiced and they haven't learned how to listen to themselves. So, but there, there's a condition in which it's, you know, experience, there's no learning whatsoever that'll change it, That's too. That's very contagious at karaoke bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really learn how little uh, singing um, people have done when you give them karaoke. It's kind of sad, actually, because I think it has a lot to do with, um, with recorded music. So before recorded music, and if you wanted music in the house, you had to have an instrument and people had to sing it. And with recorded music, you know, we all want to hear music, and, and you know, it, it sets the stage and, and, and mood for a lot of things. No one's there to play it. You just put on whatever you want now, and, uh, and people don't have to do it. And so the, the, the proportion of the population that's learned how to, how to play and perform and listen to music is really going down, unfortunately. I, I've seen you at tons of gigs and over the years, and I know that you love music. 
Are you concerned about going deaf as an expert on hearing? So we're all going deaf, and we're going deaf at a rate that's faster than any humans have ever gone deaf in the history of human life. Because of the iPhone. Because of a lot of things. Um, One of the things, so a lot of antibiotics. um, Antibiotics can make you deaf. Yeah, anything with a mycin on the end of it usually is called ototoxic. Um, So erythromycin, gentamicin, streptomycin, these things can damage your ears, especially if you get it when you're young and you get a lot of it. Um, So there are a lot of drugs that are uh, ototoxic. Um, Noise exposure damages your ear, obviously. Um, Let's see what else. Aspirin can, you know, you take a lot of it can can, uh, hurt your hearing. So anyway, we're doing, but what's making us go deaf even more than that is the fact that we're using earbuds and headphones, and it's not necessarily the amplitude, it's the duration of the exposure. And so if you went and you went to a Who concert and, you know, and you were right up front for just 10 seconds and you left, you're probably not going to be deaf. But you know the story of those people who were in the front row in, in the 70s, they all went deaf because of the exposure in time. Well, we're walking around with headphones and with earbuds, so we've got a speaker strapped about, you know, one centimeter from our eardrum, and we're listening to the sounds so loud at such a high amplitude that you can't hear any other sound. If you can think about it, you're never really in a, in a situation where one sound is so loud that nothing else is detectable. And that's the way we listen to earbuds, and people are starting to wear them at six, seven years old, and they're wearing them all the time. We're trying to get to that state so that we can't hear anything else, aren't we? We just want to hear the music. We that's want to right. Hear. I don't want to hear any of the traffic but that's noise really or unnatural. people talking in the supermarket for some reason. Apparently. Correct. That's really an unnatural state for hearing. And, and the cells that are in your ear that carry out that transduction from the vibration in the air to um, a neural signal, they're really uh, they're metabolically... Um, intense cells and so if they get out of whack just a little bit they die and and here's the bad thing about it they don't grow back it's called terminal differentiation so the cells divide and they become they're called hair cells because they look like the top of bart simpson's head and uh, they have these little tufts on the top of them and when they vibrate uh, it it converts the vibration into a neural impulse anyway when those cells die that's it are are you saying that in the long run in the in the long view of history generations from now people will look back and point to the MP3 player and say that's what destroyed human hearing? So have you ever met someone from World War II who was in combat or in the artillery, and it's a common thing? They're, they're really deaf or they're kind of shell-shocked. They're kind of out of it. They can't hear anything. Right. So imagine that person, instead of being the exception from the exposure of sound being the rule and pushing back this, the common 70-year-old hearing loss to about 50 when we're still in our working age, you know, it becomes a real communicative disorder. If someone's retired and they can't hear, well, it's just something they're going to But, I mean, that's going, to be, that's going to be society-wide. Correct. So hearing aids and hearing treatment are going to be the eyeglasses of the future. So invest wow. in hearing mm-hmm. aid stock. That's that right. Yeah, okay. that's right. That's <laughs> no, it's not. I'm actually painting a dreadful picture, and, because, and it's accurate. And uh, it's, there's a lot of money going in to try to stop this. People are trying to, for example, regrow these cells. It's hard to do. No one can do it yet. They're trying to prevent the hearing loss um, well, with drugs. Really? But, is um, there a way to prevent? Is there maybe a chemical way to actually intercept that? Yeah, you could. You can, you can, you can change your threshold for hearing, um, elevate it temporarily while you're exposed to loud sounds. And then the last thing is just not to be exposed to them, put you know, some kind of protection on or avoid the... What's the yeah. evolutionary uh, part of all this? Can it be? I mean, is it? Can it? Will we? Could we? Could we evolve somehow a way of overcoming it? Maybe so. Over generations. Yeah, that take that take a long time. Right. That take a really long time. But we're, we're, it's 
the sounds we're listening to right now on a day-to-day basis are like the sugar availability of our society. You know, no, no humans are ever exposed to that availability, and so we're now getting these types of diabetes that you would have never gotten because you never had that, that much sugar ever before. And so the body's really vulnerable to a lot of things in the modern environment, one of them is sound. What do you do about happy, it? Happy you, historian. Yeah. yeah. Are you wearing, do you have a MP3 player? So no, I'm, I'm yeah, I do. I'm, I'm guilty of it. But what I do to, to, um, to keep myself at least within, range, within some range is that I make sure no matter how loud I have it, that I can hear people talking. Right. And so, but I go to concert. Look, you know, I, I, I love Tipitina's, you know, and being up close and tightening it up, as we call it, to be right there. And, and, and I play music, too. And once you get on stage and you play with someone else, it becomes a volume war with the drummer. And so it just keeps getting louder and louder. And so, uh, the, um, yeah, no, I'm guilty. And we have to, we have to do something about it, though. Because, okay. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, still in, wrong before my golden years and sitting around going, huh? You know, like, and then you get in a car. You ever gotten in a car with someone who can't hear? Every station sounds like an AM radio. I mean, they've, it's the worst equalization of their sound because they can't hear anything. You know, it's like they're, they're, there's someone singing out of a, a so paper you've got a you've got a lifetime of work ahead of you guaranteed here because hearing is going to be, what, from what you're saying, is going to be the thing that all of us are concerned about. Yeah, it's, it, so it's, it's a, like you mentioned, invest. It's a growth industry. I mean, there's going to be a lot of research. There's, there is a lot of research right now, and, and there's going to be more because we, uh, we need to figure out how to... Um, Either better prevent it or rescue it after it's Well, finished. we're not going to prevent it because no one's going to give up this earbud world, are they? Maybe. I mean, you know, seatbelts, you know. I mean, yeah, I, that's true. I, I grew up thinking, a, like, yeah. what? You know, I'm not wearing a seatbelt. It's so uncool. And now, you know, I feel naked without it when I get in the car. So maybe we can get people to, to, to put some, like, I'll give you an example. When I go to concerts now, I bring ear protection so I can go up front and, and yeah. really be close. And you can still feel the low frequencies, you're not so far away. You know, I still want to feel the kick drum and feel the, the bass. And, but you just have to protect your ears, especially the high frequencies. Wow, okay. That's something. Cheers. That's a nice yeah. warning for everyone <laughs> listening on the internet. Deal People with listening to the show walking around, <laughs> listening to it on their, on their player. Hey, yeah. you guys, uh, Jeff and, and Frank, tell us a little bit about the book. How's it going? What's happening to you guys? You're going to go on a, on a, the book comes out when? Well, the official release date is tomorrow. It is already available uh, in a couple of bookstores in the quarter and other locations. We do have our first uh, book signing next Thursday, a week from tonight, 7 to 8 at uh, Faubourg Marigny Arts and Books at 600 Frenchman. Uh, we're going to have uh, future signings at other places after Mardi Gras. We have created a Facebook page for the book. It's uh, New Orleans. Is it In Exile New Orleans or New Orleans? In Exile, in, in Exile New Orleans. And uh, we're going to announce all the book signings and whatnot there. It is available online as well at LL Publications. And you, can I ask you a question? Sure. How different is a book about the gay history of New Orleans from just a book about the history of New Orleans? I mean, there must be just so much overlap. Well, there is, there is some overlap, uh, but the thing about it is, here's the major difference. Gazillions of books have been written about the, the general history of New Orleans and even specific aspects of it, but there's never been a book written about the gay history of New Orleans. I mean, one of the earliest references we have is to a uh, to a German aristocrat who was exiled from Germany because of a bunch of legal scandals, and he wrote he references the gay scene in New Orleans in the 1850s. 
and so I don't think any of the other New Orleans history books talk about that. So could you go to a, a to a, a New Orleans history book and just put in parentheses next to everyone's name, gay or straight, and then, uh, <laughs> and then you know you could you could do the Thomas Jefferson thing where you cut out the gay part and the straight part. Well, you know, the, the great thing about New Orleans I mean, is were the Lemoyne brothers gay. <laughs> well, Bienville, look, Bienville never married. Okay, so. Exactly. You know, you do the math. We'll f- <laughs> people can debate that. But uh, some, theor- some uh, historians uh, theorize that John McDonough was gay, uh, Clay Shaw was certainly gay, and a number of other prominent New Orleanians have been. But what I was going ma- to make a point that here in New Orleans, you know, everything's murky. There's no black and white. Everything's gray. And what is the difference between gay and straight? Well, with college kids, especially undergraduates, it's usually a 12-pack. So... You never know. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, thank you very much for joining us. Frank and Jeff, authors of In Exile, the history and law surrounding New Orleans gay culture and its oldest gay bar. Now available. We have a link to it on our site. It's neworleans.com. Chase McLeod, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We have a link to your music on our website. It's neworleans.com. And Ham Farris who's thoroughly depressed us all. <laughs> Looking forward to a lifetime of deafness. Thank you so much for joining us, too. We can find out more about your research. We've got a link to your work at uh, the LSU Health Science Center as well. The producer of our show, Happy Hour, is Melinda Hawes. Our associate producer and technical director is Chris Kehoe. Christian Anyaru is our music director. Cliff Brickton is our web designer and link to the real world. And Mitch Foreman is playing the theme song right now that he wrote. If you'd like to be on our show and you can stay sober for about an hour, drop us a line at itsneworleans at gmail.com. Our show is recorded live at the Collins Hotel in Uptown New Orleans, a great place to come and stay if you're coming here and a great place to come and have a drink if you are already here. Check out our other happy hours on our website as well as our other shows, including Out to Lunch with Peter Aschuti, live from Commander's Palace, Mindset with Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic, and True to the Game with Chris True. Keep up with us by liking It's New Orleans on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Happy Hour is a production of I Know Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For Mitch Foreman on piano, I'm Grant Morris. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Happy Hour.